0: Everyone, and welcome to Carpool Karaoke with James Corden. I'm here with, say your name, I'm here with Harry Styles, and we're about to begin singing. All right. Oh, you're not Harry Styles? You look a little bit like him. Oh, you're Timothy Chalamet, Chamele Chalamet. Did I say that right? Can I just call you Tim? Okay. So we're here with Tim. Um, he's not Harry Styles, although he does have the, you know, beautiful eyes, brown hair that's typical of what fangirls fangirl after. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so giving very much similar to Tom Holland, giving very much similar to Harry Styles. Okay. So this is Tim, Timmy, if you will. Um, he's here with us for car- carpool karaoke. Give us a little addition, give us a little B selection, if you will. Um, oh, you're shy? Oh, you don't want to sing? Okay, all right. Well, that's it on that. Um, hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, I'm really enjoying these intros now. Like, I'm really enjoying exploring funny ways of doing things. And that was all made up, guys. That was all off the top of my dome. Ugh, I'm so funny. I'm so funny. Anywho, welcome to my podcast. Uh, hello. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, Dude. And you may be wondering, why did I specifically say that Timothy Chalamet, I think it's Chalamet, I want to say it's Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet, my boy Timmy, why was he a part of that introduction? You may ask. Well, guess what? He's in the movie Dune. He is one of, I think, the main characters in the movie Dune. I wouldn't know. I didn't watch the movie yet. I plan on it, though, soon when it's not $20 to rent. Anywho, um, I'll take that up with corporate soon. So, basically the book, Doom. I have a lot to say on this book. And let me take a drink of my matcha real quick. Hold on. <clears throat> now we are ready to go. We are thoroughly prepared. So I heard a lot about the movie, Doom. It kept popping up in commercials. I watched the trailer kept seeing it every time I wanted to look at new movies to rent or buy so that I could watch them with my family. And I was very interested in this movie. However, I did not know much about it. I saw that Zendaya was in it. I saw that Timothy Chalamet was in it. And I was like, I want to watch that too. I found out that it was in movie theaters, but I wasn't really interested in going to the movie theaters to watch it. Then I saw that it was for rent on Xfinity On Demand. But then I saw that it was $19 and I said, "Mm, I'm I'm okay. I will not pay that much money yet, yet, yet. Um, I'm slowly getting there, slowly wanting to see how the movie portrays the book. Needless to say, I was in Target one day and I was frantically, ravenously searching for a book to read. I had just gotten a book previously that I read by Rashonda Tate Billingsley. I forget what the title of the book is, but it was about a family. It was really interesting. They were going through drama, yada, yada, yada. It was a good book. And I had also either gotten that from Target or Walmart. One of my trips to the store, I had gotten that book. And it was random. And I had looked up a little bit of reviews on Goodreads. And I decided to read that. And it was a great book. It was one of the books that I really enjoyed reading this summer. I should do a podcast on like books and movies and shows that I've enjoyed this summer. Like, that would be so fun. Anywho, I'll do that another time. Not these people sitting outside. Oh my god, like them sitting on the side of the road. What the? (laughs) Oh, pun-colored people do some crazy things out here. Anywho, moving on. Uh, So I saw, I was walking around looking for a book, looking for a book. Chose a couple of books that I thought were interesting, but then I put them back when I saw the price, or I saw that The reviews on Goodreads either weren't that good or the comments that people made weren't that good. Then I picked up the book Dune. And mind you, I had heard the name Dune a lot, a lot, a lot. Subtle advertising, outright advertising. And I picked up the book, read the back, and I thought, hmm, this might be an interesting book. So I looked it up on Goodreads, found that a lot of people really enjoyed it. A lot of people said it was also highly confusing and so part of me was like, mm, maybe I don't want to read this book. But I, as I began reading the book later on, I found out that actually it was not highly confusing. It's just got a high intellectual thinking. So it's not a book that you can breeze through. It's not a book that you can just like, it's not a snap. It's a meal. You have to take your time reading it. You have to carve out space to read it. You can't just really read it in passing, da-da-da-da-da, like, multitasking type of reading. You really have to sit down and enjoy the book, which is why I like it. But I'll get to that in a minute. So I picked up the book, saw that it was $14. I said, what a steal. Grabbed the book, checked it out, left. As I began reading this book, I found myself falling deeply in love with the book itself and with the writer. And let me tell you, this book I don't know why I feel like I'm about to cry, getting teared up. Is my period coming on? Like, I didn't know I felt this deeply about this book. It's really not that deep, Hannah. Calm down. First of all, breathe in. Breathe out. Drink some matcha real quick. Okay. (laughs) That was weird. It was like a sudden onset of, like, tears about to flood my my little eye sockets. And I was like, whoa, we got to calm that down. But... Needless to say, this book has been highly inspirational and it has been highly impactful for me. I never knew how much I would love a book until I read this book. I really love books that are high in literacy levels. I love books that feel like I should be reading this in an English class, and so books like um the Scarlet Letter, books like the great gatsby um What's that called? Oh, I'm forgetting the book with Piggy. I don't even remember the name of it. I don't even remember the name of it. I'm not even gonna go there. Um, but various books that I read, Frankenstein, books like that that I've read in my literature classes and my English classes, various Shakespeare you know, plays and stuff like that. I love those type of books. They're so fascinating to me. Um, and I love the way that they're written specifically. And I think that's why I enjoy them so much is because for me, I am a language person, a language enthusiast, if you will. I enjoy reading, I enjoy writing, I enjoy speaking language, I enjoy learning new languages, learning new words, learning the etymology of words I already know. I love learning about the history of language. And how things develop. I love learning more about story structure and grammar and how to correctly put things together. I love that type of stuff. I eat that up. Okay, I do. I eat that up. And so when I read a book that reflects that love and that passion and you see that intentionality in the writing, that speaks numbers to me. That is like my weak spot. That I will indulge in that book so much. I love books that do that. And so, as I began reading Dune, I quickly recognized that that was the type of book that I was reading. I was reading a book that was very eloquently written, that was very intentionally written, and that had something far beyond what I even imagined it was going to Um And I am a big fan of, like, ooh, let me get in this lane. I am a big fan of reading a book before watching the movie, because there's a lot wow. of times where movies because of the time slot that it is, have to cut out certain scenes or cut out certain parts of the book. And so I'm okay with that, but I want to read those parts first and then watch the movie and see, oh, this is how they changed it or this is how they cut things out, especially if the book was the first one. So if the book was the initial thing and then the movie was created, like based on the book, I enjoy reading the book first and then watching the movie. Um, and so I've been reading this book and it's incredibly thick. I mean, it's got like 500 or 600 or so pages. Um, and I'm not, there's, it's, it's split up into three different sections and each section is called book. So book one, book two, book three, all in one book. And I'm not even through book one yet. Um, I'm still <laughs> trudging through book one, but it's so freaking good. It doesn't even feel like a trudge. It feels like a, well, it does feel, it feels like It doesn't feel like a trudge. It feels like you're walking through, you know how when you're walking on the beach and you have to walk through the waves, but the waves feel so good and relaxing that you enjoy it. So it's not like you're hating that you're walking through the waves, but you're also recognizing that it's not easy to walk through the waves. That's how it feels reading this book. Like it's not an easy thing to read, but it is an enjoyable thing to read. And so as I started reading it, I was taking a lot of notes on different sentences that I like, different sentence structures that I like, different concepts that were presented that I liked. Uh, And I just found that there's so much here in this book, and I'm only like a 100 or so pages in, and it's so good. Um, And so yeah, that's basically what I want to talk about today. The writer of this book, I'm not sure their name, I definitely should look into that. Um, I have the book literally right next to me, but I'm also driving. So let's see if I can quickly multitask without getting in a car accident. Okay, got it. It's Frank Herbert. Frank, Mr. Frank, you did something with this book. You really did. He stepped his whole foot into this book, y'all. He ate this book up. and he And listen, he wrote this book for me. I don't know anybody else who he wrote this book for. He wrote it for me. Also, this book was written in 1965. I looked at that because I like looking at when books were created. So, like, Mr. Malcolm's book was written in 2009, and it gave me a framework for how the book was going to be structured because I knew that they were trying to go for, like, that 18th century vibe, and yet it was written in 2009. So, obviously, it's not going to be that good, right, because it's not a, a really a true timepiece. And so – but this being written in 1965 – made me understand why people thought this book was so hard to read. Because if you're not used to reading literature that is high in vocabulary, that is high in like syntax structure, and that has very intentional like development of sentences and storylines and stuff like that, you can easily get lost. And if you don't have a high comprehension level of what you're reading, like if you're able to read words, but you don't really comprehend what you're reading um, uh, then It's difficult, especially if you don't go back and read. And that's something that I've learned a lot as a reader is that you really have to go back and read. If you don't remember something or if you forget something or you don't know what you just read, go back and reread it because that'll help you so much. And there are certain points where I don't understand something specifically. I don't understand a specific scene or whatever, but I keep reading because I don't have to understand every scene in order to know what's going on. So I'll go back and reread it. And if I still don't really get it, I just move on and keep going because I get the general gist of what's going on. And that's all you really need is the general gist of understanding what's happening in the book um, in order to keep going. And so, yeah, basically this book has a couple of characters. It has B'nai Jeseret. Um, I forgot her name, Jessica, I think it's her name. She's a Bene Jeseret, which is like a type of like a type but like it's a, I don't even know how to explain it. Honestly, I don't want to go through all the characters and character analysis and all that stuff like that right now. I don't really feel like that because I just did that with all the other things I've done. What I really want to talk about specifically in this podcast right now, this episode, is I want to talk about the syntax structure. Maybe one day I'll come back and talk about the characters and the setting and all of that stuff like that. But right now I just want to talk about the syntax structure because that's what I'm really in love with. I am in love with the way that Frank Herbert has actually written this. I am in love with his choice of words. I am in love with the actual way that he writes things. So typically when writers write, they use a lot of words. And they use a lot of filler words, such as and. And in some cases, and is a great word to use to connect two sentences. But in other cases, it simply is a filler word. Something that I saw that Frank Herbert does differently is he will write part of a sentence, put a comma, and then write the rest of the sentence and not use the word and because he recognizes that the comma is the word and. And so there'll be so many situations in which he'll say a sentence and and it doesn't have the word and in it. And you're a little bit confused and you're like, how did we jump to this? But it's like the way that he writes it. Let me see if I can find, let me see if I can find, um, I don't even know. Okay, I can't find it, but basically, it'll be like, um, the Duke sat down with his son, comma, commanded him, or something like that. The Duke sat down with his son, comma, said to him, and so instead of it saying, the Duke sat down with his son and said to him, he'll just say, the Duke sat down with his son, comma, said to him and then continue with the dialogue. And I like that because it shows that you don't have to have a bunch of words. Words sometimes can be too much, too overstimulating, too um, overpowering, if you have too many unnecessary words in your book. And I feel like that's a very intentional choice to not include the word and, because it, it makes you Stop relying on that word as a way to show a connection between two things. And you can show that same connection using a comma. Like comma and and are able to be used replaceably. They're able to be used interchangeably. And so I just like that choice that he made in the book. Okay, let me go through now and talk about some of the specific pages that I liked and specific descriptions, etc etc On page five, it said, Animal consciousness does not extend beyond the given moment. Animal pleasures remain close to sensation levels and avoid the perceptual. And I love this because this is what I feel like is talked about in Ecclesiastes when he talks about the difference between humans and animals. And just in the Bible in general, when it talks about the difference between the way that God created humans and animals, God created animals in a different way than he created humans. And with humans, we're able to see the perception. We're able to perceive things beyond where we are right now. And a lot of times when we indulge in sin, when we indulge in our desires, we end up focusing on pleasures that are just at our sensation levels, that just get us high, that just get us um, excited and feeling good instead of focusing on things that are beyond the here and now. And that's what animals don't really focus on. Animals focus on what do I need right now? What sensations do I need right now? I'm hungry, I need to eat. I need to pee, I'm gonna go pee. And so it's focused on those senses and those sensations of the present moment, not necessarily focusing on beyond that moment, right? And so animals don't plan they don't like plan ahead in the future. You know what I mean? Of course they plan how to kill their prey and stuff like that. Like they they attack and stuff like that, but they don't plan for the future. They don't do none of that, but humans do. And so I think a lot of times when we let our sensations, our senses take control of us, when we allow how we feel and what we want and all these pleasurable things to control us and we're focused on getting high off of the one thing after the next, that is animalistic behavior. Because that's what animals do. Animals focus on the given moment and and pleasing their own sensations. And I think that sometimes we need to make sure we recognize that there's stuff beyond this given moment, right? That we can perceive things farther than what's given right now. So I love that. Um, Page six said, focused consciousness by choice. I love that. And I feel like that is the philosophy I have about counseling. Counseling helps me to... Make the choice of focusing my consciousness on on what I would typically push to my unconscious. And I think that's where people make the mistake is they feel like, oh, you shouldn't go to counseling because, you know, you just need to depend on God. Yes, you should depend on God. But what's great about counseling is it brings to your conscious, to the forefront of your mind, a lot of things that you typically repress or don't think about. So even in your time with God, you may not be thinking about these things that you could be thinking about had you had counseling, right? A lot of the things that we tend to repress, emotions, thoughts, experience that we tend to just push down arise when we are focusing our consciousness on those things. And so I love that. Focused consciousness by choice lets me know. I'm focusing my brain, my mental energy on this thing, bringing it to the forefront instead of pressing it back or pushing it back. And so that's one of my favorite lines in the book. The next line in the book that I liked was on page 12, where it says hope clouds observation, period, 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 period. Hope really does cloud observation. How can you observe a situation? um, Oh. somebody about to get an accident, how can you observe a situation objectively without, if you have so much hope, and I think of hope sometimes as expectation too. Like expectation and hope can sometimes be um, interchangeable or kind of correlated. And so when you have all these expectations, all these hopes of what something's gonna be or what someone is gonna be, then it clouds your observation of that person. It clouds what you can actually physically see of that person. For example, if I go on a date And I have the expectation of it being this, that, and the third. It's going to cloud my observation. It's going to cloud what I'm able to see and note from this person. And so, like, when I went um, to hang out with one person um, the other day, I had no hopes, no expectations for anything other than making an acquaintance. And I went in and I observed so much about that person. I observed their insecurities. I, and it's like, I don't want to put anything on anyone, but I genuinely observed things about that person because I simply listened and I took everything for face value. When I saw that man I kept talking about the fact that he always be at the gym and he only likes physical things and he wasn't really an education person and da-da-da-da-da, I saw an insecurity there. I saw an insecurity in the fact that he is only sees himself in such a way that he sees himself for his physical strength and not for his mental strength, right? And so those are those are things I picked up on and I observed simply because I was listening. And my hope for what I wanted this person to be did not cloud my observation of who that person actually is. And so that, my friends, is my favorite line. I keep I keep saying these are my favorite lines. All of these are my favorite lines in the book, period. But I, I that is another line that I feel like is true to me and is true to the season I'm in right now. Because a lot of times, I meet people or I talk to people or whatever, whatever, and it becomes something where like I get so hopeful, so focused on what I want them to be or what I want things to look like that I don't focus on what actually is presented and what is actually presented is what I am supposed to observe objectively and take an assessment for myself from that. So that's pretty much it on that. That was on page 12. Page 39. Oh, I love this page because this spoke to my heart. It says, a good ruler has to learn his world's language, that it's different for every world. The language you don't hear with your ears. Basically what this is saying is that if you're going to be a ruler, so the Duke of of whatever, of Caledon, I think it is what it's called, is moving to a new place. Him and his family are moving to a new place called Ar- um. Ar- Arrakis. And they are about to kind of, you know, set up shop and they're about to to um, kind of rule over this area now. And so they've got new people who've got a new language, who've got a new way of living, new religions, et etc. et cetera. Or not new to, it's new to the Duke and his family, but it's not new to people who've already had those. And so they've got these legends and they've got these myths and they've got all of this culture that surrounds them. And I love this line because it tells me that like when you are a ruler or a leader, that's how I put it in my mind. That's a leader more so than a ruler. When you're a leader of anything, you have to learn the language of your people. You have to learn the language of them, not just what's spoken, but the body language. You have to learn the body language, the actual physical language, the cultural language. You have to learn the language of your people. And I realized for my classroom or for any business that I own or run, that is going to be the same thing. I have to learn the language of my people. I have to study them. I have to understand how do you speak? What do you speak? What do you talk about? You know what I mean? Um, How do you operate? What does operating look like for you? What are things that you connect to and don't connect to? What can I tell based on your body language and your posture how can I sense your emotions through your tonation and stuff like that? And that's something that I got very comfortable with as I was interning at New River is I began to note um, the different tonations and the different um, like body languages of my students. And so I could pick up on when they were feeling emotionally drained or when they were feeling certain things. I could pick up on it and and, and be able to help them in that way because I could sense them that intuition in them. Um, But but I could sense that through the intuition in me um, to be able to tell like what's going on with them because I spoke their language, right? Um, And I was able to understand them in ways because I focused on knowing them and knowing how to operate with them. Um, Another line that I really like is on page 40 where it says the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience this is literally becoming the motto of my relationship with God my relationship with God and all his power and his superior being is not a mystery for me to solve I'm not supposed to figure out how is God this and how is he that da, 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 da. but it's simply a reality to experience it's a reality for me to say okay my God is very mysterious and he's a being who I do not know nothing about. Well, I know something about, but not everything, right? I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipresent. I don't know everything, right? But it's not a mystery for me to solve. It's not something I need to fix. It's not something I need to figure out. And I got to get to the bottom of this. And for me, I'm not a very, uh, not a person who's very big on like theology and knowing everything about everything. Like, I'm okay when I don't know that stuff, right? And so for me seeing that God is simply a reality to experience in that way. It really invited me into a deeper fellowship with him because it made me realize I don't have to know everything about God. I don't have to know everything about the way that he works. I just simply need to experience the reality of who he is. And that experience happens through me connecting with him. It happens through me aligning with him. It happens through me listening to him and talking to him, right? Having those conversations. And so I love this line so much. The mystery of life, is not a problem to solve, but it is simply a reality to experience. That also made me think, too, about my own life and how there's a lot of problems that happen in life or a lot of things that we can't quite figure out. Like, we don't know why this happens or why this is the way that it is. But it made me realize too. I don't have to know why, and I don't have to try to figure out why, and try to beat myself into getting an answer because you're not going to. Right? We don't know all. We don't see all. We don't experience all. And so we're just simply meant to experience the reality that God has given us. And that's 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 what that's it. You know. And I love that line so much. So, you know, life life is interesting. We don't have to figure everything out though. <laughs> we can simply experience it um, for the reality that it offers. Um, another line that I really liked was page 84, where it says every experience. Okay. Where it says every experience carries its lesson. I feel like that's true too. I like that line because it tells me that in each experience we have, there's a lesson to be learned. And I like that it says carries its experience. Like it almost personifies your experience as a human being that could literally pick up things and carry it somewhere else, right? And I like that, I like that kind of terminology. I like that syntax. I like the way that the author uh, structured that and kind of metaphorically and figuratively used that language in order to communicate a truth that your your experiences really do hold and carry um, your lessons that you need to learn, right? And that's something that I love because I definitely experience that on a day-to-day basis where every experience I have teaches me something and I always learn from my experiences or I try to at least learn from my experiences. Let me get a drink of water real quick. So yeah, um, so that's one of my favorite lines. Every experience carries its lesson. Um, the next line I love, and this is on page 92, and this is convicting. This line right here felt like Jesus was speaking right to me through this book. It says, the proximity of a desirable thing tempts one to overindulgence. And literally that's it. <laughs> you could have left it at that. and i You could have put that one line in the entire book, and I would have been like, man, what a great book. Because that line itself is so true the proximity to, uh, what was it? The proximity of a desirable thing tempts one to overindulgence, um, both like in a physical sense and in an emotional sense. Like physically, if you are close to like, you know, let's say you love desserts. If you are close to a plate of desserts, it's gonna tempt you to overindulge in those desserts. It's gonna tempt you to eat more and more and more. And I think about it, even the way that people have structured stores Like anytime you go to the store, they put these tiny little things right at the checkout so that it tempts you into overindulging. You don't really need a pack of Tic Tacs, but they put it there so you get the pack of Tic Tacs. That's almost overindulgent. I would say that is overindulgent because you don't need it. You don't really want it. And yet you get it right because you see it. and You're like, oh, okay, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, and so the the proximity of a desirable thing tempts you to overindulgence. It doesn't mean that that desirable thing is necessarily bad. It just means that the overindulgence of it could be a possible Hazard, right? I think about it even in the sense of like your phone. If your phone is right next to you while you're laying in bed, it's going to tempt you to be on your phone more than if you put your phone across the room to charge, right? And so for me, I I started doing this thing, especially after talking with my counselor about it, where she suggested putting my phone in another room. I've done this thing where I literally don't put my phone in my room anymore. I put it outside of my room, which it's also helpful because I don't have a wall right now. Um, but I put it outside of my room to charge. And I leave it out there so that it's less of a temptation for me to go on it and spend longer than I need to on it. Because, yes, watching YouTube and being on Instagram and all that stuff is great and it's fun and it has its purpose, overindulging in it and the temptation to overindulge in it is also dangerous and it's not helpful. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty much it on that. The descriptions of Gurney on page 102 show exactly why I love this book dearly. Um, and let me actually go to it because I don't know what the descriptions are of him on page 102. So let me head on over there. Mind you, I'm still driving, so I'm trying to be careful. I'm trying to be careful, y'all. Let me... Uh... And I feel like this is not that important for me to have to look at it, but I will. Okay, it says... Okay, this is what I love. So it says Halleck's wispy blonde hair trailed across barren spots on his head. His wide mouth was twisted into a pleasant, sne- pleasant sneer, and the scar of the ink vine whip slashed against his jawline seemed to move with the life of its own. To move with a life of its own. His whole air was of casual shoulder set capability. He came up to the Duke, bowed. And I love that. And remember how I told you how the author doesn't say came up to the duke and bowed? He says came up to the duke comma bowed. So it reads a little bit weird because we're not used to that in current, like modern day literature, but I love it. And so the, even the phrasing of the way that he describes this person, that the wispy parts of his hair are like laid across the barren parts like that just lets you know, this dude is bald and he's got little strings of hair that he's trying to cover up with. Right. And I just, I love the way that he writes this, the way that he structures the, the description of Gurney and Gurney is one of my favorite characters too in the book. But, um, he the way that he structures it is so beautiful. And like I said, that's why I love this author. Because he doesn't just say, "Oh, Bernie is a tall guy with brown hair um who's balding." Like it's not typical descriptions. It is very much intentional descriptions. It is very much descriptions that are very beautiful. But he also doesn't overdo descriptions. And one thing I've noticed about a lot of modern day books is they overdo descriptions. They spend too long trying to tell you how this character looks. Whereas if you're a good writer, you give us a little bit of how the character looks enough for us to build a foundation off of. And then we take it from there. The reader themselves actually does a lot of work in dis- in putting in their minds what the character looks like. So as a writer, you don't really have to describe much. You just need to describe the framework of the person per se, like give us the basics and we will build from there. In our minds, we will build an image. And also you don't have to give all the descriptions at one time. Descriptions can be done throughout. So that way we can see the character in a holistic view and not just at one point in Time we're describing all of these characters about characteristics about this character, and we're giving you all the information flat out. Like, no, you can develop it over time, and I prefer books that develop the characters um, over time. Next, I love page 112, and I actually plan on using the same verbiage in my own book because I was so inspired by this line that I'm actually gonna steal. Uh, and it's not really stealing, but it's more so taking inspiration from the way that he wrote this and using it in my own writing because I have been doing a little bit of writing on my own um, um, on my own as well. And um for me, writing stems <clears throat> I can't sit down and write, right? Hold on, let me get another drink. I literally cannot just just sit down and write. Like for me, Writing is a process and it takes time and it takes like inspiration. So, for me, a lot of times my inspiration comes when I'm laying in bed or when I notice certain senses that I'm experiencing and I'll start writing, right? Um, and uh, actually, let me talk about that in a minute. Let me talk about this page right here and then I'll talk about that in a minute. So, page 112 says, Paul held himself apart from the humor. This is my favorite line in the entire book because I love the way that the author is giving us a clue about Paul's characteristics. Like he's giving us a clue about what Paul is like, how mature Paul is, but he doesn't tell us Paul is mature. But whenever everybody else is laughing about something that Paul didn't particularly find funny or that wasn't necessarily appropriate... It literally says, Paul held himself apart from the human. He held himself apart. He separated himself from the human. I love that line. Why do I love that line? Because it subtly gives us an attribute of Paul, that Paul is mature, that he is wise beyond his years, um, and that he doesn't feel he has to conform to other people. It gave us all that information about Paul without actually telling us that about Paul. And that's the type of writing I love to see. And I actually just love the phrasing of it too held himself apart. It makes me feel like he's got this, like, air about him where he recognizes when he wants to include himself in something and when he doesn't want to include himself in something. And that is beautiful. Beautifully written, my man. Frank Herbert. Frankie, I love you. I love you, dude. Like, I literally love Frank Herbert so much. This book is so freaking good. And I think it's a series. So hopefully if I finish this book and I still enjoy it as thoroughly as I do right now, I'll read into the next book and the next book and the next book. But as I was saying about my own writing, I'm typically inspired by certain moments. It's certain moments that just trick in my brain, right? So basically one time I was inspired to write a book about grief whenever I had a friend who passed away and I noticed the grief of all those around me. Um, and so I wrote that book, bam, inspiration, and it just came out, right? Um, I was inspired to write a book about blurting vert whenever I noticed my students were blurting out too much in class. And so I wrote an entire book on that or like a little short story on that. Um, and it was dope, right? I love writing, but I cannot just sit down and think of something like it has to come from just this random feverish type of writing. Like it's, it's so random and I can't predict it. And it comes at random times in the day at random periods. It's just when something I see sparks me, I go. And so last night I was thinking about my trip to the beach because I was writing in my journal about what I experienced and how I enjoyed going to the beach by myself so much. And as I was writing about it, I was reminded of all the senses that I experienced, right? Looking at the clear water, seeing the cool, seeing the schools of fish, um, feeling the warmth of the water um, and the warmth of the sun, et cetera, et cetera, expe- experiencing high tide. And in my brain, I started putting together these sentences and I started creating this little story in my mind. Next thing you know, I'm up and I'm writing this down in my phone and I'm trying to capture as much as I can. Um, and I just love writing like that. Like writing like that is so fun to me because it's just like, it just comes out. And so I typically just do a brain dump. I don't try to refine myself. I don't try to make it make sense. I just write and write and write and write until I get to a point where I don't feel like writing anymore. And there is one, there was like this one scene that I wrote yesterday. Um, that And it's just, it's really random things. Like at first I started off thinking about that. Then I jumped to something else that I, and I just jumped to different scenes in my brain that start that I start being, like, inspired by. I just jump to different things. And so um, this one scene I wrote yesterday, and I said, um, so basically these are two people speaking. So it says, the pursuit of a young man of this demeanor is not likely to happen again. You must be reasonable, Eleanor, and accept his proposal to marriage. Now, I don't know if Eleanor actually going to be the girl name. I just put question marks after it because I don't know. But this is just a rough job, right? And then Eleanor says, and if I don't, a pointed stare, then a whispered. How would you put the future of your siblings at risk like this? How would you put our family's future at risk? We come from humble means, yes, but we have, a, we have uh, much a long way to go. Mother, you've come from humble means, but through the work you and Father have done, you've provided us with abundance. I will not force myself into a mindset of scarcity on this matter. He is not the first man to induce a proposal and surely won't be the last. But he should be the last. You should be ready at your age to settle down and begin your life of marriage. My life has already begun. It began when I decided to live only as I can. You are deranged. Perhaps your father should have a word with you. A glance toward the one named father in the room signaled his invitation to the conversation, and he began with the meager, I, I have no explicit opinion on this matter other than that she should do what she what makes her feel at peace. Eleanor, does it give you peace to marry this fellow? Father, I have, not even met, I have not even known this man long enough to peaceably determine him a friend. How could I marry him? Many have married under even shallower conditions, but why must that be my story? Why must I choose to do what I do not fully know or desire in efforts to be acceptable by society's terms? You of all people should agree with me, and that he did, for he knew all too well what it was like to not be accepted in society's terms. And there's more, but I'm not going to keep reading because uh, your girl's driving. So let me be safe. Anywho, I love what I've written. I'm excited to keep writing. I have a couple ideas in mind, so I'm just rolling with them. Um, But yeah, I hope you all have a great time. Like I said, Dune is becoming, it actually is hands down one of my favorite books. Um, It's at the top of the list right now for me. And I always say this, and then another book comes and another book tops it. But for right now, Dune genuinely is at the top of my list because it's just so well-written, and I love it. All right. I love you all, too, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Mm, Bye-bye.